The National Archives podcast series. Tracy Borman on the private lives of the Tudors. This talk was recorded on the 9th of February 2017 at the National Archives, Kew. Thank you very much indeed, Hester, and thank you for the invitation to come back to my old stomping ground, which I'm always delighted to do. Now, can I just do a sound check? Everybody, on the, particularly towards the back, yeah, big thumbs up. Thank you very much. Uh, you can all hear me okay. Um, well, yes, I'm here to talk about those Tudors. We all love them, don't we? I hope we do. I assume that's why you're here uh, this afternoon. And um, there was an article in The Guardian about the same time that my book was released saying, aren't we all sick of the Tudors yet? <laughs> to which uh, my response was, I hope not, uh, because uh, the private lives of the Tudors, as I say, had just uh, hit the bookshelves. Well, the reason for this article was, of course, the fact that uh, history books tend to be dominated by the likes of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I. They're on our screens quite a lot. Um, my partner in crime at Historic Royal Palaces is Lucy Worsley, who obviously recently presented The Six Wives of Henry VIII. And they're the subject of feature films, etc., etc. We're all fascinated by those charismatic Tudor monarchs. And I myself have long been fascinated by them. Um, I fell in love with them when I was studying my A-levels, actually, and um, it's been an enduring love affair. But I'd reached the stage of arrogance, actually, of thinking that I knew pretty much everything there was to know about Britain's most famous royal dynasty. But in fact, as I discovered whilst researching this book, I only really knew half of the story. I knew the side of the Tudors that they wanted everybody to see their public persona, uh, the, the very confident, the very glamorous face that they showed to the outside world. But the inspiration to look into their private lives came from my work at Historic Royal Palaces, and in particular, where I'm based at Hampton Court, because I listened to a lot of questions from our visitors to the palace. And even though, obviously, there's, there's an awful lot to ask about its architecture, about the, the routines of court and, uh, and the splendour on display with the tapestries and other decorations, actually, most questions were rather more fundamental than that. Where did Henry VIII go to the toilet is top of the list. Um, how did he wash his clothes? What did he eat? Where did they sleep? It's the nitty gritty of court life that most of our visitors want to know about. And actually, I realised that I needed to know about that too. And hence, the idea for this book was born. Well, the research for the book took me to some fascinating places. Um, archives, obviously, some incredibly rich archives here um, on the Tudor period, um, as well as the architecture that surrounded me in the palaces. And above all else, it was the eyewitness accounts by the likes of this, the, the cheeky page boy peering through the casement window. It's a contemporary painting from the, uh, the Tudor period. And you might think, surely um, lowly attendants such as this couldn't read or write. Well, they absolutely could, because one of the best ways to get on in life was to get a position at court. So these were all sons and daughters of noblemen. Um, they were extremely well educated, even if they fulfilled very menial positions at court. 
and they left behind a detailed record of what they got up to whilst serving the Tudors. And I'm going to share with you a few of their secrets. Well, one of my favourite parts of working for Hampton Court is this, because I get to go through the doors that say private on them. And even though I will confess about nine out of 10 of the doors have something like a broom cupboard on the other side, uh, you still get a bit of a thrill because you're going to a part of the palace that not many other people get to experience. And it was exactly the same in Tudor times because every single palace built by the Tudors was, was designed in a very deliberate way to enhance the mystique and the privacy of the monarch. So at the heart of every palace, you would find what was known as the privy chamber, the monarch's private apartments. And your ambitious ambitions, rather, as a visitor to the Tudor court would be to get as close as possible to the privy chamber. Ideally, you'd get invited into it, but only a handful of the most highly favoured members of the court ever breached the divide between the public world of the Tudor court and their private apartments. Well, it was a very um, effective system of enhancing the credibility and the prestige of the monarch, but the Tudors didn't invent it. In fact, there are references to the private apartments of the monarch as early as the Norman period in the 11th century. Now, this man can be credited with taking it to a whole new level. The charismatic Yorkist king, Edward IV, was recorded as having really enhanced the luxury of the private royal apartments. He really had an eye for detail and for PR opportunities. So it was really Edward who was the forerunner of the Tudor Privy Chamber. And the Tudors um, loved the idea. They made it their own. And here we have a very rare glimpse of what it looked like inside. There aren't many, in fact, any complete paintings of inside the Tudor's privy chamber that still survive. But this is a sketch by Holbein and it is entitled Henry VIII Dining in Private. <laughs> yes, let me just qualify that word for you because as you can see, there's about 20 courtiers in attendance while Henry dines in private, as it was called. Well, privacy didn't mean quite the same thing to the Tudor monarchs as we might understand today. For a start, the Tudor kings and queens would never have been left alone for a single moment of the day or night. It was inconceivable. They'd been raised like this from birth with a whole army of attendants to serve their every need. And of course, there were security considerations too. So a monarch would never be left completely alone. And even in private, as you can see, there were quite a few attendants to serve them. Nevertheless, those attendants were sworn to secrecy about what passed inside the privy chamber. They could record it in their official records, but those records would then be kept secret in the royal archive and the royal treasury. So nobody would see uh, the officials' accounts of what went on behind closed doors. But of course, they're now open for all to see. And I will take you on a journey behind closed doors with me. So much for the 
the sort of prelude, the architecture, the definition of privacy, I want to turn now to the people themselves, those extraordinary men and women who ruled England during the 16th century. Well, the first of them uh, shown here was Henry VII, becomes king in 1485, having defeated Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth. Well, Henry has suffered, really. Uh, He's been rather overshadowed by his much more famous son and namesake. And if people know anything about Henry VII, usually it's that he was quite serious, suspicious, and above all, miserly. He has a real reputation for penny-pinching. While that particular fact turned out to be rather unreliable as I started my research into Henry's wardrobe accounts. And I discovered that in the first two years of Henry's reign, he spent the equivalent of three million pounds just on his own clothes. What a staggering sum. Well, was this spending maintained, I wondered? Surely he would have bankrupted his new kingdom. Well, what I did find out is that he didn't spend 1.5 million every single year on his clothes, but there were definite spikes in his expenditure on his wardrobe during certain periods of his reign. And always those spikes coincided with when Henry was under threat from rival claimants. It's almost as if he had to dress the part in order to feel it, because frankly, Henry's claim to the throne didn't bear close scrutiny. He enhanced it um, by marrying well, He married the heiress of the House of York, Elizabeth, eldest child of Edward IV, whose portrait I showed you earlier. Well, she was of impeccable pedigree, and Henry um, intended this as very much a political match, but it became much more than that. A genuine affection soon grew between this unlikely couple, uh, the head of the House of Lancaster and the head of the House of York, and they did grow to love each other quite deeply. Well, as I began my research into the relationship between Henry and his new wife, I was under the rather naive assumption that the love lives of the Tudor monarchs would probably be the hardest thing to find out about. In fact, it was by far the easiest. Because um, talk about intrusion of the press where the royals are concerned today. They have no grounds for complaint, believe me. Um, The very first thing that would happen... Um, after the wedding uh, feast had been concluded, was something called a bedding ceremony. So on the day of their wedding, Henry and Elizabeth would be escorted to bed by about 30 courtiers who would then fan out around the bedside and watch as Henry and Elizabeth were undressed down to their linens. Now, in previous bedding ceremonies, this wasn't a new invention sometimes those courtiers would then stay for what happened next. On this occasion, they did leave, but they only went as far as the room next door so that they could listen in and find out if the marriage had been consummated. Well, Henry and Elizabeth were far from being affronted by this. Why shouldn't their subjects take an interest in this very dynastic marriage? Because after all, it's about the begetting of heirs. So they didn't think anything of what we would consider intrusion today. Just a word about this bed before I move on, because it is quite an extraordinary survivor. It was only discovered a few years ago, um, and it was actually discarded outside a hotel in Chester. 
that was being renovated. And luckily, it was uh, spotted by an eagle-eyed antiques dealer who thought it looked rather splendid. And uh, the builders got wind of the fact it could be worth something, so they put it on auction and the antiques dealer bought it for a song, considering what it has since proved to be. Because um, extensive research and, and dating and all the rest of it has very convincingly proved that this, in fact, was the very bed that was made for that wedding night between Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. Needless to say, I'm trying to get my hands on it for Hampton Court, um, but it's, uh, there are several other claimants to this uh, so-called paradise bed, um, as it has become known. Well, eight months after the bedding ceremony, a child is born. That's interesting, isn't it? Eight months. Um, a son arrives, Prince Arthur, whom all the public reports say is a small child. But when you read the reports of the midwives who attended Elizabeth of York, they all talk of a, a full-grown, lusty young boy. So I will just leave you with that thought. Perhaps, after all, Henry and Elizabeth hadn't quite waited for the bedding ceremony. Well, I mentioned it became a marriage of affection, not just politics. And Elizabeth bore Henry seven children, but it was shortly after giving birth to that seventh child that sadly Elizabeth died on her 37th birthday. She was still very young and the child died soon after. Henry was plunged into grief. And what you see here is an incredibly rare illustration of the public and the private sides of court life set against each other. It's from um, the National Libraries of Wales. And on the right, you see the public court. Uh, it's in mourning for the death of the Queen. In the centre is Henry VII himself, also wearing mourning clothes. And on the left, we have the late Queen's bedchamber. Now, I don't know if you can just make out these two girls here. Um, they are the royal princesses, Margaret and Mary. They wear black veils as they mourn for their mother. But what particularly fascinates me is this little figure here. It, he is wearing um, green, as you can see. He has the characteristic red hair of the Tudors, and he's weeping onto his mother's empty bed. It's the future Henry VIII, and it's an extraordinary, extraordinarily rare illustration of private family grief. Well, Henry VII retreated into his own privy chamber for so many weeks after Elizabeth's death that eventually his anxious ministers had to persuade him out for fear that there would be some kind of uprising. And to everybody's surprise, the first thing that Henry did upon re-emerging into public court life was to talk of marriage again. Even more surprising was his first choice. The lady on the left was his own daughter-in-law, Catherine of Aragon, who had married that eight-month prince, Arthur, and he had not long survived the wedding. Well, Catherine was horrified at the prospect of marrying her ageing father-in-law, and it all came to nothing. But undeterred, Henry turned to another beautiful young lady, Joanna of Naples, uh, she was the most acclaimed um, prize on the international marriage market, but I'm afraid she didn't think much of the idea of marrying Henry either. So he remained a widower. And so he was when he died in April 1509. And this is um, quite a faint sketch of Henry's deathbed. And it's taken at the very moment of death. You might just be able to make out 
that one of his grooms is closing the king's eyes. It's in fact the least private of all the Tudor deaths. Um, as you can see, there are quite a few people in attendance. But even though there were so many attendants, it's an indication of how seriously they took their oath of secrecy that Henry's death was kept from the rest of the court, including his successor, Henry VIII, for two full days until everything had been put in place to ensure a smooth succession. And then here we have him, our most famous, arguably our most famous monarch, Henry VIII, who succeeds his father in a blaze of glory. He seems the very opposite of dour old Henry VII in every way possible. He's a strapping six-foot-tour. He's uh, incredibly good-looking, described as an Adonis by one visitor to Henry's new court. Uh, he's young. He's only 17 years old. He's incredibly athletic, too. So put from your minds the thoughts of the bloated Henry VIII that we all know from those Holbein paintings of the later years. He was very far from that as the new king of England. He seemed the very embodiment of majesty. Well, he did in public. But of all the Tudors who I researched, it was Henry VIII who changed the most for me when I looked at him in private. Because in his privy chamber, he's shown here on the left, he was described by one astonished visitor as being the most timid person you could hope to meet. It's not a word often associated with Henry VIII. Well, the reason for that remark was Henry's fear of sickness. He was a hypochondriac, absolutely paranoid about falling ill. He wouldn't let anybody who so much as sneezed within a 10-mile radius of the court. He submitted himself every single day to the examinations of his physicians. His favourite doctor is shown here. And his privy chamber inventory tells us that he had his own medicine cabinet inside, uh, including some potions of the king's own devising. One of my favourites that intrigued me most was something called simply the king's special ointment. Wasn't made clear which part of the body it was used to treat, so my mind just continues to boggle on that one. Well, in the Tudor times, there was a strong link made um, between um, the movement of the planets and one's health. Uh, and so you'd have your horoscope taken less to find out what would happen to you in life generally than to find out what sort of things to watch out for health-wise. The planets were thought to be able to dictate your physical well-being. And Henry was fascinated by this. So he had this incredible astronomical clock installed at Hampton Court Palace. And he was always having his horoscope taken so that he knew the sorts of illnesses that he ought to keep an eye out for. And yet I do think it's rather ironic. He goes to all of this trouble to avoid sickness, but thinks nothing of this. Donning a suit of armour, charging at great speed towards an opponent in the field of combat. He loves the tournament arena. He loves jousting. Physical sport is his great passion. He goes hunting most days for several hours. And he's always having accidents, quite serious ones as well, narrowly escaping death on one occasion when he's thrown from his horse and lands head down in a deep pond in a suit of armour and that his attendants only just managed to pull him out in time. 
1536, Henry really did have a very serious accident whilst jousting. He was knocked from his horse. One account claims he was, he was actually knocked unconscious for two full hours, although the person who wrote it was in Paris at the time. So I think we can doubt its uh, authenticity. It was, though, a serious accident, and it left Henry with an injury on his leg, which became infected and ulcerated. And that leg injury would plague Henry VIII for the rest of his days. There's been a lot of talk about this accident. Did it cause some kind of brain damage? There was a personality change in Henry afterwards. I think it's simpler than that. I think it's just that Henry was a man in pain from 1536, and that pain only got worse. So little wonder that he grew short-tempered in his later years. Well, Henry had always liked his food um, and he'd got away with it when he was exercising so much. But after the injury, he wasn't able really to joust or to ride nearly so frequently. And he didn't moderate his diet uh, to take account of that fact. And so the inevitable happens. I'm, I'm afraid that in the space of five years from 1536 to 1541, Henry goes from the Adonis to this. Uh, his waist now measures uh, 50 inches. It's expanded by 17 inches in five years, which is quite a rate. And it's going to get bigger still um, until the end of his life. It's said that three of the biggest men that can be found can fit inside the king's doublet. He is enormous. He has to be winched onto his horse. They have to fashion some form of stair lift to carry him between the different floors of his palaces and he's obliged to use a wheelchair um, behind the scenes in places like Hampton Court because he is now so immobile. And of course, the more weight he puts on, the more pressure is put onto his ulcerated leg. No wonder he is so foul-tempered at this time of his life. But I'm afraid there's another reason for Henry's poor temper. And that's a rather embarrassing health complaint that starts to develop uh, in the 1540s. Now, have you all had lunch? <laughs> Good. Okay. <laughs> you may regret it uh, in the next couple of slides. But um, basically, Henry's diet is not good because not only is he eating too much, he's eating the wrong kind of things because what he loves more than anything else is red meat. And he washes it down with large quantities of red wine. It's a sort of really bad version of the Atkins diet, okay? Not many fruit or vegetables, just red meat and red wine. It has a side effect. And uh, that's that it makes Henry's bowels not quite so efficient as they once were. Let me introduce to you at this stage of my talk a member of the Privy Chamber staff called the Groom of the Stool. You may have heard of this position. It sounds on paper to be the worst job in history. Okay, Groom of the Stool involved attending the king when he visited the clothes stool, the toilet. And he would be alone with the king and he would have to wait patiently in Henry's case um, until the king had finished and then he would have to clean him before Henry was ready to go back out into the public court. You would imagine most people would not want to touch this role with a barge pole. But in fact, it was the most sought after position at court. For good reason. To get on in the Tudor court, it's all about access to the king. Nobody has closer access than the groom of the stool. And while they're there waiting as the king is on his toilet, 
They can petition him for all sorts of favours and titles and lands for themselves and their friends. And they've got a pretty captive audience in Henry <laughs> as he's sitting there. And it works brilliantly. You find the grooms of the stool suddenly start to amass lots of property and riches from their position. That's why everybody wants to be groom of the stool. But the man who was groom of the stool in the early 1540s really had to earn his crust. He was called Thomas Hennage. And at this point in Henry's reign, he was suffering so badly from his bowels and the lack of movement therein that Hennage decided there was nothing else for it but to administer an enema. So we know all about this enema, thanks to Hennage being one of those very uh, dutiful officials who wrote everything down. And so he describes it in detail as being made from a pig's bladder filled with two pints of salted herbal water inserted with a greased metal pole. This is when people start to shift uncomfortably in their seats and kept in place for two hours until it could work full effect. And then Hennage gleefully reported, his majesty has had a fair siege. One can work out what he meant by that. He did though admit that the king has suffered a little soreness in his body for several days therefrom. Well, uh, let me move on swiftly to um, only a slightly less um, embarrassing uh, health complaint, that of impotence. There had been rumours that the king lacked puissance, as it was put, as early as his second marriage to the infamous Anne Boleyn. By the time he married this lady, the fourth wife, Anne of Cleves, there was no doubt. There's a very detailed account of the wedding night that makes it plain that Henry was unable to consummate the marriage. While I think in one of the greatest injustices of history, all the blame has been placed on Anne, hasn't it? She's the ugly wife. No wonder Henry couldn't bring himself to consummate the marriage. It's all Anne's fault. But I just wonder if it's a case of protesting a little too much because there was no indication of any unease about Anne. In the run-up to the marriage, Henry had gone to great trouble for it. He'd had this magnificent bedhead made full of fertility symbols and the like. There were great hopes of the marriage. But of course, it all went horribly wrong and Anne soon got the blame. And by the way, there's no hint that any of his subsequent wives had um, any symptoms associated with pregnancy. And everybody was always watching out, of course, for a royal wife to be pregnant. So I think probably Henry was impotent for most of the rest of his reign. How different he had become from that man who had ascended the throne in 1509. And there's a real sense of humiliation on the part of Henry VIII that he wants to increasingly hide away from the court. So at Hampton Court, he has this built. It's the Bain Tower. Now, has anybody, have you been to Hampton Court? Just a quick show of, yes, lots of nods, great. Um, it's just off Fountain Court, okay? It's, there's, an, there's a new cafe, actually, on the ground floor. Um, but it's only in re relatively recent times that it was discovered that what we thought were just courtiers' lodgings was actually the new bedroom built by Henry VIII. Henry's bedroom still exists and is currently being occupied uh, on that floor by our IT department, um, who we hope will soon vacate so that we can open it up to the public. Do come and see it when we do. Well, the Bain Tower was even more private than Henry's privy chamber. It was called the secret lodging. 
And it was clearly built to house everything for the king's comfort so that he wouldn't often have to go out into the public court. There was a bedroom, a bathroom, a jewel house, a study, a library, um, a chapel. It was all there for Henry and he was hardly ever seen in public. And when he did go in, out in public, because he was relatively immobile by that time, he had little tricks um, performed by his private servants to make himself seem invincible. So I mentioned that he was um, carried about in um, in a wheelchair for, for much of the time. He, he would, though, rise and walk heavily leaning on a stick um, whenever he was in front of his court. Um, he didn't like to admit weakness. He also had, so the tailor's accounts reveal, fur lining sewn into his underclothes because, of course, without being able to move very fast... He was getting cold in these drafty palaces. So it's clues such as this that show Henry's vulnerability. And he went to uh, Greenwich to celebrate Christmas in 1546, but in fact didn't last um, to see Christmas Day itself at Greenwich. Uh, He retreated to Whitehall Palace and there, attended by just three close servants, he breathed his last in January 1547. It was the most private of the Tudor deaths. He even refused to see his sixth and final wife, Catherine Parr. Well, he was succeeded by the boy king, the precious boy for whom Henry had gone to so much trouble with all those marriages. Let us be in no doubt if Catherine of Aragon had had a living son, our history would have been very different indeed. Edward was the son of Jane Seymour, born at Hampton Court in 1537. Well, he's long been portrayed as a fragile boy king. Yes, he was young. He was only nine when he took the throne, but he was far from fragile as this rather charming portrait by Holbein shows. And one visitor to to Edward's private apartments at Hampton Court described him as being a well-fed little boy. Well, he was raised... Um, pretty much wrapped in cotton wool in modern parlance. Uh, You you might imagine how paranoid Henry VIII was about his son's well-being. Anybody who visited Edward at Hampton Court had to have themselves washed down beforehand. The walls of Edward's privy chamber were washed down twice a day. They didn't quite get the link between hygiene and health, but it it worked. Um, and, And so Henry kept up the regime. Well, Edward was entertained by luxurious toys um, for his amusement, such as these little pewter figures. There's a tiny ship there on the right-hand side. Even his school books had gold covers encrusted with rubies. The result, I'm afraid, is that he grew up to be rather spoilt and used to getting his own way. So that when he, uh, shortly after he became king, he was still receiving lessons from his tutors, but he didn't feel that he had to obey their commands any longer. And when one tutor insisted that he did so, in a fit of spiteful revenge, Edward grabbed a falcon, a living falcon, and tore it to pieces in front of his tutor. One can only wonder what he might have become had he lived longer. But when uh, he'd been on the throne for just four years, he was struck down by measles. This seems to have weakened his immune system and he was never very well thereafter. And it was probably tuberculosis that killed Edward in July 1553. Before we leave him, though, there's one more thing to note about Edward's private life. And that's that of all the Tudor monarchs, He's the only one to have kept a diary. I'm showing my age here by um, giving this as an example. But 
Edward was about the same age as Adrian Mole when he started his own diary. It was very far from being a typical diary full of secret hopes and desires and fears. However, as I discovered when I looked in the archives, and I was quite disappointed really, because it's actually just a fairly staid list of events in Edward's reign. And even turbulent events and ones which must have affected him deeply, one would have thought, are afforded only a very cursory mention, such as the execution of his once favourite uncle, Lord Protector Seymour, um, uh, who was, uh, whose death was described in the following way by the young Edward. The Duke of Somerset had his head cut off this morning. That's all he said about it. Well, Edward was succeeded briefly by Lady Jane Grey um, before Mary Tudor, whom most saw as the rightful successor, seized the throne. Um, While Mary has suffered, a bit like her grandfather, Henry VII, as being, um, well, apart from the whole Bloody Mary um, badge that is given to Mary, she's seen as rather serious, certainly very devout, and dare I say it, a little bit dull. Well, the public Mary may have been some of those things, but the private Mary was altogether different. In private, Mary loved to have fun. This was her favourite attendant. It's from a detail of a portrait of Henry and his family. And she was called Jane Fool. She was that rare phenomenon, a female jester at the Tudor court. Mary loved to laugh. She had a great sense of humour. Jane went with her everywhere in private. Mary was also fantastic as a hostess in her privy chamber. She loved to throw parties. She loved to drink as well. On one occasion, drinking more than would fill a great river, as one rather astonished visitor to her supper party remarked. Mary famously fell in love with a portrait. Philip of Spain was the object of her affections. Now, admittedly, she was predisposed to like him, being half Spanish herself. And of course, he was a Catholic and Mary wished to return England to the Roman Catholic fold. Well, when Philip came over and Mary met him in person, she was even more enamoured. The wedding happened soon afterwards and that flew in the face of public opinion. We were a very xenophobic nation in the 16th century. We didn't want a Spaniard as as king, but Mary cared little for that. She married Philip anyway. Philip, I'm afraid, was rather less enamoured of Mary, who was 11 years older. And he said after the wedding night, he confided to a private attendant, my new wife is no good at fleshly sensuality, as he put it. Well, he certainly did his duty because just a few weeks after the the, uh, wedding, Mary started to show signs of pregnancy. She started to be sick in the mornings. Um, Her periods stopped. Um, Her her stomach started to swell. And so as she reached her eighth month, according to royal tradition, she entered what was known as her confinement. This is when a royal wife goes into utter seclusion in her privy chamber for a month before the birth. And she's attended by midwives who will be there at the birth and by the other ladies who are there to serve her, a female and all-female household. Well, when the ninth month arrives, of course, everybody is expecting daily signs of labour pains, but they don't materialise. And the tenth month comes, and so does the eleventh, and still there is no sign of Mary's labour beginning. And eventually, a full year After her pregnancy had first been announced, Mary has to admit defeat. It's almost certainly been a phantom 
pregnancy, there will be no child. You can imagine poor Mary's humiliation as she has to go back out into the public court with no heir to show for it. Well, tragically, the same thing happens two years later. Mary again displays the signs of pregnancy. She goes through the charade of a confinement, but really it's only Mary herself who believes that it will result in a child. Elsewhere, it is whispered that the Queen is suffering from what the Tudors call a tympany, a tumour. She may well have had stomach cancer and she dies in November 1558. Amongst her private effects were a, uh, was a prayer book and there was a, a particular page in that that was very well thumbed. It was a, a page filled with prayers for expectant mothers and her attendants found that it was stained with Mary's tears. So I do think Mary does deserve some sympathy as a tragic queen, not just as the bloody queen as she has gone down in history. She's succeeded by her younger, much more glamorous, much more popular sister, or half-sister rather, Elizabeth, daughter of Anne Boleyn, who, like her father Henry VIII, enjoys enormous rejoicing upon her accession. Bonfires are lit. There are great celebrations across the kingdom. Here we have good Queen Bess on the throne. But the rejoicing doesn't last very long because Elizabeth makes it clear from pretty much the start of her reign that she has little inclination to marry. Well, so what we may say today, but it was rather a bigger question in Tudor times. It was inconceivable that a woman wouldn't wish to take husband, particularly if she was queen. How could she expect to know how to govern without the guidance of a man? But Elizabeth famously declared, I will have one mistress here and no master. There was, though, of course, the odd favourite, the odd male favourite, none more so than this man, Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. They'd been friends from uh, since the age of eight. Uh, they had an awful lot in common intellectually. They sparked off each other. Um, he made her laugh. They loved to converse together until the small hours. There was undoubtedly a strong attraction between Elizabeth and Dudley. But did they or didn't they? Well, I think I'm probably asked the question, was Elizabeth really the Virgin Queen? In pretty much every talk I give, even if I've just been talking about the Norman Conquest, (laughs) even so, I'll be asked, was Elizabeth the Virgin? Well, in the course of my research, I uncovered a piece of evidence that I think is quite compelling. Um, And it takes place in 1562 when Elizabeth is staying at Hampton Court. And so she's only been on the throne for, well, barely four years when she falls dangerously ill. It's smallpox, one of the deadliest diseases of the age. Survival rates are very small. Elizabeth herself expects that she is going to die. So she summons her confessor and she attests to that confessor that nothing improper ever passed between her and Robert Dudley. Well, the cynics in the audience may be thinking, yeah, words are easy, but not in this God-fearing age. She'd have felt that she was putting her eternal salvation at risk if she had lied to her confessor. So I do believe she was the Virgin Queen. Well, she was in 1562. You'll have to read the book to tell you, you know, whether she remained the Virgin, but she certainly remained in love with Robert Dudley, even though she never married him. And here in the National Archives, one of my favourite items is the last letter 
that Dudley ever wrote to Elizabeth. After nearly 50 years of friendship and courtship and who knows what else, he writes to Elizabeth as he's dying. And Elizabeth was grief stricken when Dudley died and she kept that letter in a locked casket by her bed for the rest of her life. And it is inscribed in Elizabeth's handwriting, his last letter. Do take a look at it if you haven't already. It's one of the great treasures of the National Archives. Elizabeth, um, virginity apart, was one of the vainest, I think, of the uh, monarchs in British history. It took her ladies two hours to make her look like this every morning. And to achieve that ethereal white glow, they used lead, white lead um, mixed with vinegar. It's called ceruse and, and it was plastered on Elizabeth's face and neck and hands. Well, for a queen who is paranoid about aging, it's the very worst thing she could have done because lead withers the skin. It causes it to be deeply lined. It also causes dramatic hair loss. And Elizabeth, from her 40s, was relying heavily on wigs. She had more than 80 wigs in her collection. Elizabeth, as well as being vain, was also very clean once famously declaring, I will take a bath once a month, whether I need it or not. <laughs> and most people bathed in this style. Apologies for the quality of this um, illustration, but um, a fairly rudimentary wooden tub lined with linen to stop you getting splinters. This wasn't good enough for Elizabeth. She had a sort of Turkish style bath at Whitehall. These are fragments of that bath. And uh, steam was pumped in through uh, ceramic um, pipes, highly decorated. There were oyster shells from which the water poured. She even had an organ installed in the room next door so she could be serenaded while she took a bath. On the whole, though, the Tudors didn't so much wash their bodies as their linens, their underwear. Because the belief was if you plunged yourself in hot water on a regular basis, it, it was positively bad for you. It opened up the pores of the skin and infection would get in. That was the belief. So instead, they would change their linen underwear two or three times a day if they were rich enough. And linen, actually, to be fair, is very effective at drawing out toxins and, and odours from the body. So apparently it does work. Uh, for several months, you can just change your linens, have them washed, not wash your skin, and you will be as sweet smelling as you were at the beginning. And one historian has tried this. It wasn't me. But she does say that it, it was, in fact, highly effective. Well, on top of her linens, Elizabeth wore some of the most glorious gowns ever seen in creation. She had, according to the Venetian ambassador, six thousand dresses in her wardrobe. Never was Elizabeth justified in that old excuse, I have literally nothing to wear. Well, it's a great tragedy, therefore, that every single one of those 6,000 dresses has been lost. Also, we thought, if any, somebody, some of you may recognise this, it was in the news recently. It's actually an altar cloth from a church in Backton in rural Herefordshire. And I saw it in a glass case on the wall of the church when I was researching one of Elizabeth's attendants many years ago. And as is often the case with historical discoveries, I was there to look for something completely different. I was there to look at a monument. And then I saw this. Now, this slide doesn't really do it justice because I was staggered when I saw this on the wall of the church. It is beautiful. It's cloth of silver. It glimmers in the light. It's exquisite in the quality of the embroidery. But I was unable to act on, you know, doing any further research into it until 
researching the private lives, which gave me another excuse to go back and take another look. And I took a dress historian with me and her jaw hit the floor when she saw it because she said, this isn't an altar cloth. This is the dress that Elizabeth wears in the famous rainbow portrait. And if you look at the bodice and the skirt is of the same material, it is identical. And there's since been more research done and um, a discovery made that in fact Elizabeth gave a dress to her favourite attendant, Blanche Parry, who is buried at Bacton. The likelihood is that it was made into an altar cloth because the Tudors were a thrifty lot. Clothes were one of the most expensive things you could spend your money on. When a gown had outlived its usefulness, it would be repurposed into a cushion cover, an altar cloth, whatever it might be. So almost certainly that's what it was. We've now borrowed it um, at our conservation studio at Hampton Court. As soon as the conservators took it out of the glass frame and turned it over, they saw the curved seams that prove it was once a dress. So it's extraordinary. I'm happy to say we're going to be putting it on display at Hampton Court in a couple of years' time. One more thing altered Elizabeth's appearance, apart from her her cosmetics and um, her dress, and that was her sweet tooth. Now, I can sympathise with this. I have a very sweet tooth myself. This is actually my wedding cake, by the way, from two years ago. Um, You can take your obsession with the Tudors a little bit too far. Um, Well, Elizabeth didn't just eat um, marzipan and, and other sweet things that you'd expect. She added sugar to her wine. She sprinkled it over salads. She even had a perfume which contained sugar just for good measure. Well, of course, imbibing so much sugar um, had the inevitable effect of making Elizabeth uh, lose a lot of her teeth. She suffered very badly from toothache, tooth decay, foul breath, all of those associated um, uh, signs of, of eating the wrong things. Well, Elizabeth, by her late 40s, had lost so many teeth that her face had changed completely. She was always pretty thin because even though she ate a lot of sugar, she didn't eat much else. She was quite uh, abstemious. So she was naturally very slim and her face was slim too, but now it was gaunt. Her cheeks were sunken in and she didn't like it. So she told her ladies to do something about it in private and they came up with something called plumpers. These were little clots of material soaked in sweet smelling herbs to sweeten the queen's breath and stuffed inside her cheeks to literally plump out her face when she appeared in public. Well, it seems that she managed to to pull it off because at receptions such as this, when she's greeting foreign dignitaries in her presence chamber, uh, they all speak of her youth and her beauty. And even when she is nearing 70 years of age, one ambassador reports the Queen is of such youthful beauty that she can be no more than 20 years old. So uh, good old Elizabeth and all those little tricks that she employed behind closed doors. It kept her eternally youthful. And only her ladies ever saw what really lay beneath, except on one notorious occasion when this man saw everything. He was Elizabeth's last great favourite, Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex. And he was an audacious young man and believed he could literally overstep the mark where Elizabeth was concerned. And he had the bright idea one morning of bursting into Elizabeth's bedchamber and surprising her before she was dressed. It didn't turn out very well. Can you imagine the sight that would have confronted Essex? There is Elizabeth stripped of her makeup 
her wigs, her plumpers, all the other adornments, he doesn't recognize her. He thinks there's just an old lady sitting on the bed in Elizabeth's bedchamber. And when he does realize, he can't disguise the horror that he feels. Well, Elizabeth commands him from her presence. And the sort of man he is, he goes straight to find his friends so he can laugh about it and scoff at what he calls the crooked carcass of the queen. Let's just say, those of you know what happens to Essex, Elizabeth has the last laugh. Well, she dies, uh, the Virgin Queen, in Richmond in March 1603. Of course, no direct heirs, so the throne passes to the House of Stuart in the form of her closest blood relative, James VI of Scotland, son of Elizabeth's old rival, Mary, Queen of Scots. And it soon becomes obvious that James has no patience for the elaborate ceremony of the Tudor court. Neither does he appreciate the need to separate the monarch's private life from his public one. And ironically, James would have been well advised to keep his private life private. It was more sordid than all of the other Tudors put together. And as a result of this, by the end of James's reign, respect for the monarchy was dangerously low. And of course, we all know what happened after that in the reign of his son, Charles I. That's why I believe it had been the private lives of the Tudors, just as much as their public magnificence, that had been the real secret of their success. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence. 